Welcome back to the Leverage Podcast. I'm Ari Mizell. And I'm Nick Sonnenberg. And our guest today is the person with the fifth highest IQ ever measured. He is the founder of Scorpion Computer Services and the inspiration for the CBS TV show by that same, well, almost same name, Scorpion. Walter O'Brien, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you making the time. So I, I want to cover a little bit of your background. You know, I'm sure people have seen the show and, and, and maybe others have heard of you, but you were a computer project, I guess you'd say, from, from a very young age. And so how did you get interested in computers? Let's start with that. Well, I was born in a, a dairy farm in Ireland, which was uh, farming in the rain, effectively. And uh, I wasn't too interested in the future of that. And, um, you know, I wasn't one of those kids who was great at sports or anything at school. And then the headmaster's brother had a little uh, class teaching what was called Turtle Logo at the time. And um, it's kind of a visual programming language. And as soon as I did one class, kind of the, everything clicked and the light bulb came on and it was all intuitive and I was left-brained and logical and the computer was left-brained and logical and it all made sense to me. And um, there was this thing I was naturally good at where, you know, at the end of the class, the other students and, and the teachers were gathered around me seeing that I could make this stuff really dance. From class to class, they would always hang back at the end and see what I had figured out how to make the computer do. So... Then I read a book called Into the Heart of the Mind by Frank Rose, which was all about artificial intelligence researchers in the 60s. And that kind of opened up the whole universe of philosophy and thinking about thinking and trying to replicate humans and, and how difficult that is. And that started a whole journey of kind of appreciating yourself. How do you walk? How do you listen? How do you learn? How do you see? How do you know what you see? How do you remember? And it just became a, this whole fascinating universe that was more interesting than farming in the rain. What programming languages did you start off learning at, at, at that young of an age? Well, Turtle Logo was the first one. Then um, the first computer I got my hands on was called a um, Amstrad 464. It was kind of like a Commodore 64 back then with a cassette tape drive instead of a disk drive. So that ran on uh, Locomotive Basic. So the basic language was the first language I learned to code. And then Quickly started learning things like Modula 2, Occam, uh, ANSI C, C++, MFC, and just kind of worked up the chain from there. Gotcha. I, I mean, I have a bit of a background in coding, but uh, those languages are, are are not something in my wheelhouse for sure. So do you know like assembly and like machine code as well? Is it is it that low level, some of those languages? Um, I definitely did learn assembly and pure machine code. Uh, you have to for hacking. But um, uh, those languages are kind of one level above that. That would be my next question then, too, is how do you go from like an interest in computer programming? And I, I mean, I, maybe some people find them harder to separate. But from that interest to deciding you want to start hacking, you know, and seeing how you can get inside the box. Well, it was actually the other way around. The way I learned to program was kind of through hacking, uh, meaning... You know, I, I, there was no one to teach me. Nobody in the school knew the subject or, or knew programming or other languages. Um, I, you know, I couldn't afford to travel for classes. There was no online classes. So basically, all I could do was load up a program, typically some kind of game or card game or video game, get into the code and start changing numbers, and then jumping back into the game and seeing what effect that had. And if I exaggerate the number enough, it should have an exaggerated effect. So maybe the screen turns blue or the edge of it turns yellow or I change a number from three to six and suddenly I have six lives instead of three lives in the game. And it was really trial and error, breaking it and fixing it and tweaking stuff that I slowly figured out what each command did. And once I figured it out, I never forgot it. I kind of taught myself programming that way you know, until I got to college seven years later. And uh, did degrees in artificial intelligence and computer science at Sussex University. But um, before all that, a lot of it was self-taught and trial and error. And um, getting into hacking then beyond that, once you know how to reverse engineer systems and tweak them and what keywords to look for, then if you want to remove the dongle off a piece of software or you're trying to figure out where it's, a game is saving its... its um, is saving its position or how it knows what stage it's jumping through or where its cheat codes are, 
you start figuring out intuitively where those things would be stored or there's only like three options or three typical places they would be or it must be related to the part that uploads it into the memory overlay. So you start looking for certain keywords and you just kind of like a map, you start learning where to jump around and where to look for stuff. Do you still code like to this day? Is that part of your day to day or now you have, you know, more of a CEO type of role within Scorpion and you're dealing with other things and don't get too much time to to do all the hacking that you used to? Definitely don't get the time to do the hacking at the low level that I, that I used to do. There's a couple of exceptions to that. Uh, there's, we've invented 150 different technologies in the company and some of those like SenGen, which is an artificial intelligence engine, does 250 human years of thinking every 90 minutes. I wrote that. I maintain it. It has its own modeling language, and there's only a few people on the planet that understand that language. So I often get uh, yanked in to maintain or tweak those models, generally for military and government clients. Uh, and I enjoy that. I enjoy getting my head around code a little bit. A lot of the kind of stuff I do now at the higher level from you know the, the dark web community and trying to put together white hat hacker strategies for customers is really using the same level of thinking, even though I'm not touching the code. So someone gets attacked by ransomware or got caught by the WannaCry virus recently. And I go, okay, here's your, here's your options. You know, you can have an offsite snapshot backup. You can have a local backup. You may run a last modified date stamp check to see which files haven't been affected yet um, in case, you, um, uh, in case you, you, you can salvage some of your backup although some of the one the the latest cryptoware takes care of that as well so i you know in other words i know enough to drill down and talk through the logic now going ahead and getting on the machines and executing and copying and moving those files from server to server i have people to do that now but the nice thing about my business at the moment is you know we do up to 150 missions a day maybe 5% of those get into trouble where something's gone wrong or something's very difficult and I just get to manage by exception, which means I get to work on the most interesting stuff. By the time the problem is brought up to my attention, it means everyone else couldn't figure it out. And that uh, you know puts a little pressure on me, but it also means I get to solve the coolest problems. What do you think about the claims that Russia hacked our election? Um, I think the word hack is, is a little overused by the media on that one. Um, could they have done strategy for Trump and figured out uh, and, and pushed a lot of SEO and social media stuff subtly and uh, put out fake news and manipulated Facebook for what, what appears where to how many people and makes good, you know, good news uh, bubble to the top and bad Clinton news um, also bubble to the top? Absolutely. I think absolutely that kind of manipulation could, could be happening and going on and... Uh, uh, I think all countries could engage in that kind of subtle, we'll call it SEO warfare. But actually hacking in and faking, uh, not faking voters and having them vote in the in the system, I don't think so. Um, I, you know, I'd be surprised if I saw evidence of that. Uh, kind of the the more obvious way of hacking an election, just having fake voters vote. Most of this stuff is pretty offline independent, right. multiply synced up, logged locally. Um, so the election systems we have are pretty clunky right now, which would make it pretty hard to hack a system like that in an elegant way. But did we have absolute um, manipulation of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, for uh, you know media manipulation? Um, Jerry-rigging. Well, definitely jerry-rigging of that. I'm trying to think of the World War II um, phrase that Hitler used when they uh, were constantly trying to brainwash the public. It'll propaganda. Say again? Propaganda? Propaganda. Thank you. Yes. Was there propaganda manipulation? Absolutely. Another question for you regarding hacking. I was just randomly watching a documentary on John uh, McAfee, um, or maybe McAfee. I don't know how to pronounce McAfee, it. Yeah. McAfee. Really weird slash interesting story. But I do remember a few years ago, there was that shooting in San Bernardino and the FBI was trying to get Apple to unlock the phone and Apple was refusing to. And I remember he went on the news and said that he would be able to hack into that phone. Is that the type of thing that someone could give to you guys as a project, like give you a, an iPhone and you would be able to break into it? So 
our company, uh, just to, to answer that fully, we, we kind of have three focus areas. A third of our work is military. Uh, a third of it is Fortune 1000 enterprise software work. And then the last third is individuals who want to use our think tank to help themselves reach their full potential. And in that third part, which is called concierge our company has been simplified to three words, any funded need. And the problem we have is nobody fully grasps the meaning of the word any. Now, to clarify that any funded need, what we do does need to be legal in the country we do it in. And I, I put that in as a, a qualifier because things are legal and illegal all over the place, depending on which country you're operating in. And in general, it has to be good or neutral for the planet. And uh, even if it's neutral for the planet, we generally use the profits for philanthropic good anyway. So it ends up being good. So asking us to hack into a phone and break an operating system is actually illegal and breaking the terms and conditions of the manufacturer, unless um, we have a what's called a get out of jail letter or permission from the manufacturer to do that. Now, are there obvious ways that we can access memory cards and SIM cards and, and plug in a certain software to, to pull pictures and files and things off of a phone that someone lost that's their own personal data? Yes, but if we have to actually jailbreak a phone, then it's technically illegal. But you guys, uh, let's say the law changed tomorrow and all of a sudden it's not illegal. That would be in your wheelhouse of things that you technically know how to do. Correct. Yes. Yeah. It's not that we can't do it. It's whether we should do it. So what's one of the more exciting projects that you've had? Like, well, let's talk about concierge up for a moment. Like what was what was one of the more memorable ones that you've that you've done that you obviously can speak about? That was a problem that you were able to, to solve. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have more and more testimonials for people we've helped with healthcare issues and so on from last year. Though They've done video testimonials will be up on our site in about a month uh, for, for this year. Uh, but we've done a lot of crazy things. We've had people's books endorsed by Oprah. We've gotten made people uh, their book a New York Times bestseller. We've chosen winning racehorses based on their DNA and won national championships. One billionaire called us and said his son fell in love with a Ukrainian gold digger. Can we break him up before the wedding, but don't let him know we interfered? How much did that cost? That one cost about, uh, I think it was about 250 grand. And played out over six months. Can you give like a high level of what that looked like? How did you do that? So what happens is we hire private investigators to profile the uh, the boyfriend and the or the son and the uh, girlfriend, and um, we find out that the son likes to go to the you know the same clubs and drive the right sports cars and wear the cool suits. So we get another billionaire's son who's a an agent for us from Europe to come over and rent a mansion down the street from the first guy and drive the same cars, wear the same suits and party in the same clubs. So very quickly, they organically become friends. And then we find out that the girlfriend likes to go to the same Starbucks after her uh, gym workout every morning. So we have another Ukrainian girl in Louis Vuitton's with uh, her um, designer jeans stand in front of her in line speaking in her native language on her cell phone the first morning. And they don't talk. And then the next morning, she's standing behind her in line talking on her cell phone, and they don't talk. So the third morning, we use movie, TV, actor extras to fill the whole coffee bar or the whole Starbucks, except for one seat. And um, then they're kind of forced to sit together. And our girl's wearing a wire. And they she starts telling gold-digging stories and talking about how naive Americans are and how much easier things are here than in the Ukraine. And eventually the other girl opens up and says, yeah, she has a billionaire son on the hook and they're going to get married and she'll get uh, she'll get her green card processed while they're married and then uh, file for divorce and then use the divorce money to bring her real boyfriend over from the Ukraine. Wow. So <laughs> once, once we had that recording, it was no good to the father because he already knew. It was no good in court because it's inadmissible. That recording was just for me because we had to know we were doing the greater good and we had to know that... Uh, her intentions weren't honorable. So now, as, as they say in the office here, she'd fallen on the wrong side of my fairness algorithm. So from there, we uh, went ahead and uh, had an acting coach as well as, uh, as a psychologist work together to write a speech for the father of all the things he shouldn't say to the son. And then um, we texted the father on a Thursday night to create a fake argument about something with his son that escalates into this full rant and speech. 
The son gets all ticked off, as predicted, grabs his bag, goes down the street, goes to his friend's mansion, and uh, sits there complaining about his father. And the friend empathizes and says, you know, that's terrible. You should get revenge somehow. You're welcome to stay here. But in the morning, I have to fly to the Dominican Republic for my friend's wedding. So it took a moment, and the light bulb turned on, and the son went, that's it. I'll grab my girlfriend. I'll go with you with no prenuptial, and I'll get married after your friend gets married. So that's what they did the next day. They flew to Dominican Republic. They had the first wedding. And then he got married to, to the Ukrainian girl in the second wedding with the same priest. And then uh, while they're on the honeymoon, we see her filing for the green card and the initial steps of that going through. And then a while later, uh, once she knew her, her green card would be secured, she uh, applied for divorce and actually asked for an exorbitant amount of money in order to keep it, the family's name out of the press. So we invited her to our offices downtown for her settlement. Uh, she came in. She hadn't seen me before. I gave her a contract. It was the first time she'd been on time for a meeting. She flicks through the contract and says, this is an acting contract. And I said, I know. Do you recognize the signature? She goes to the back page. She turns white and realizes that this is the priest who married them. The first wedding was fake. The second wedding was fake. All the attendants of the, of the wedding were fake. The second uh, letter we gave her was from Homeland Security, banning her from the U.S. for 10 years. <laughs> Uh, he had done immigration fraud and submitted a fake marriage license. We told her her Uber was waiting outside with her bags in it. We had a gag order for her to go back to her country and never talk to the son again. We had a Dear John letter written in her handwriting with a handwriting copy expert. So she just signed off on that. That went back to the son saying that she went back to her home country and she doesn't want to hear from him and doesn't want anything from him. The son was relieved to get that and happy to never talk to her again. And he's rebonding with the father who never interfered. That's one of the most incredible stories I think I've ever heard. That must have felt pretty good. Yeah, it was basically a six-month movie with no cameras. And so how many people, you I guess included, how many people on your team were required to plan that out and execute on it? Uh, not the actress and things, obviously, but like from your team. Yeah, put who's, that who's the mastermind behind it and how yeah. many masterminds were there? Well, yeah, so, so let's explain how we work a little bit. So we have a consortium of over 3,000 geniuses with 500 of what we call super nannies. Now, one of the whole kind of keys to our success is when I started my company at 13, I thought, well, I'll just hire my friends who didn't bully me at school from the Gifted Children's Society. And they're all with IQs over 150. So I'm like, well, I'll have a company full of geniuses. That's got to be a good idea. Well, as soon as I put two of them on the same project and they tried to kill each other while insulting the customer, I realized it wasn't such a good idea. And I started understanding that the, often the higher the IQ, the lower the EQ, the emotional quotient, common sense, social skills. And at the same time, Carnegie Mellon had released a report saying that 85% of your success is your EQ, 15% is your IQ. So I should have been screwed. So I went out and hired single moms, elementary school teachers, and psychologists who had high EQ to manage the high IQ people. And I called them super nannies because they babysit the geniuses and the customers. So now I had a think tank with the best communicators working with the best thinkers, and it, it all kind of worked. So in any project for any customer, the first thing that happens is you get assigned a super nanny who speaks plain English to you and understands your requirements, your fears, your worries, your budgets, and then they run the show. And they pull the geniuses who don't speak human too well in and out as needed. Um, so the psychologist that they needed or the acting coach or whatever, you might only need them for four hours. Um, so the super nanny is spending your dollars or your budget as cleverly as they possibly can to use the minimum resources to achieve the goal. So to answer, answer your question on that whole project, there would be one super nanny running it, and she probably would have pulled in and out maybe five or six geniuses to help with different aspects, whether it's legal or, or uh, psychological. Operationally, how are you guys set up? Like, So you have thousands of geniuses at your disposal, and like, obviously that they must be remote. What tools do you use and how do you process a task and organize all the steps and outstanding action items on a task? Yeah, and that's that's one of the key kind of, I don't know, epiphany might be a, a strong word for it, but for the company in that for 20 years, we only solve technical problems, supply chain management, shop floor planning, underwriting of credit cards, you know, uh, warehouse management, things that uh, needed mathematical optimization for big, big companies. That's our whole background. And um, for anyone who's in that universe, they know methods of 
PMP, project management professionals, Gantt chart planning with dependencies, um, agile development methodology, where you uh, have daily stand-up meetings and you pivot based on what you learn each week on your bigger plan and, and so on. And these methodologies have been around for, have been formed, different forms of what we call SDLC, Software Development Lifecycle, have been around since the 60s, trying to figure out how to turn ambiguity into absolute. You know, you've got some fuzzy requirements in your head of what you'd like, and I've got to turn them into black and white ones and zeros. So that process of how do you turn ambiguity into absolute? And the epiphany for our, us on our side was, well, that doesn't just apply to hacking systems. That applies to hacking lives. If I was planning my wedding or my divorce, I would take the same approach. What are my requirements? What are my budgets? How do I pivot? What have I learned? What, uh, how, what's my disaster recovery plan in case it rains? Where, how do I eliminate my single points of failure so I can manage risk? Those are good questions to ask in any situation. So what we've done is taken all that engineering discipline that's considered standard operating procedure now for any engineer, and we opened it up to the general public and said, we'll just apply it to your life. If you come to me with a medical issue or a malpractice lawsuit or you don't know if your diabetes meds are correct or, or whatever, we're going to manage everything as an engineering project. And the general public has never seen this kind of stuff before. To them, that's like hiring NASA and the CIA just to work for them. And we look at all possibilities, even the crazy possible outcomes like the story I just told you, and lay it all out in a plan and execute it. And uh, nine out of ten times, it... Uh, it all comes together and it works out. But from like a practical and just um, like software point of view, are there specific tools that you're using? Like I'm say I'm one of your 3000 geniuses. How do I know today what I need to work on? Like what tool, what am I logging into? Have you guys built custom software, your own custom project management software, or are you using some off the shelf tools to communicate and manage projects? We have both. We've used systems like Redmine and, uh, uh, you know, systems you use to manage tasks. We use Skype or um, uh, Zoom to do meetings and have them recorded. We have, you know, timesheet, time stamping stuff that's all integrated into our accounting system. So, I mean, there's no magic there in terms of it's all just best practice stuff. If you were going to manage a team of 100 developers tomorrow to build an e-commerce site, and you'd have your source control system and your defect tracking and your task assignment work and et cetera, et cetera, and your billing and invoicing. Basically, we work the exact same way. So we look like a software development shop, even though we're not doing software. Right. I mean, it would be great offline to kind of have like a little mind meld because, you know, obviously we're an outsourcing platform. Most of the tasks we do are not quarter million dollar tasks. You know, it's insert a plugin on a WordPress site or book some travel or design a logo or something like that. But anyways, structurally, it's very similar to, to how you're set up. You know, we have hundreds of people on the team and, and, you know, on the order of hundreds of clients and prioritizing and managing who needs to be doing what, when, you know, is something that we do have in common. So it, it would be just interesting to separately share our setup and see if there's a way to collaborate on that. Well, I'm, I'm open to having you guys talk with our COO and operations folks the uh, top folks in the company, just to give you a flavor of the folks that report up to me, uh, first guy's dad built Skylab. Um, he designed the, uh, the uh, uh, control system for the smart grid. Uh, our re chief, chief researcher did the uh, electronic warfare simulation system for the Ministry of Defense. We have the president of the White Hat Hackers Association in North America, works with us, and one of the co-founders of DEF CON. The guy who wrote the legal version of Napster. Just all kinds of interesting folks that uh, that sometimes have to be super nanny, but are brilliant at what they do. I think we have different profile of people on our teams. We just had a team retreat. I mean, the types of tasks that we're doing are to totally different, but I won't go into our, our team's background as much, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another sort of like project question for you. So I, I saw some examples on the website that had to do with like improving businesses and, and success and efficiency. A lot of SaaS companies, there's a metric that a lot of SaaS companies look at, which is churn. So just like, obviously you can't get too specific about things, but like a very high level, how, if somebody came to you and they're like, I want to reduce our churn by half, you know, so we lose less customers, retain more. How, how is that like a very basic thing for you guys to approach? Is it, or, and also is that like a, is that like a purely data thing in most cases? 
So actually, it's interesting. We haven't had a specific request for that to reduce churn. The closest thing we've had to it is we did have a big company that needed to move from one state to another. They wanted to move from a big city to a, a cheaper state for real estate-wise and everything else. And they didn't want to lose half their employees by saying, hey, let's all move out of the big city into the country. So they needed a whole psychological plan, presentation, PowerPoint, compelling argument, bonuses, bribery, whatever you want to call it, to try and ensure that the whole company could move with hundreds of employees without half the employees saying, okay, I'm just going to stay in the city and look for a new job. And that was just one example of reducing their, their churn based on one event. You know, customers will ask us to do all kinds of things like reduce their returns or sales, especially for women's clothes online where they need to solve the problem of fit. And you end up with this problem where you get 35% returns because there are no standards in women's dress sizes in terms of inch measurements from uh, designer to designer. So they always order two sizes of everything, try them on in their bedroom and return one of them. And if you're paying for the shipping and handling on that, that kills all your profit margin. So people come to us where they can articulate a problem like that and say, go solve this problem go lower my returns um, or let's drive more traffic or fix my sales funnel. You know, but a lot of that is trial and error to, 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 uh, to figure out, but uh, we fail faster till we figure it out. Now, what, what about like, say you say any task that's legal funded and on the right side of fairness algorithm. So like, let's say cure cancer and let's say I have, you know, a billion dollars to fund this project. You know, is that something that, is that like the type of thing that you guys would take on? Or is there, in fact, like a limit to the types of tasks that you would take? Uh, no limit and no size or big task scares us. You know, we've done fix my problem, fix my company, fix my family, fix my health or fix my country. And uh, we've done all, all of those levels. And if you said a billion dollars to cure cancer, our question back to you would be, well, is it your cancer specifically uh, that you have? or your families, or just in general, you want to cure cancer for everybody. Right. And the question then would be when, because if we fund all the research in head transplants, you would be able to step away from the most cancer by throwing away the old body. Um, if you worked on brain uploads and stem cell cloning, which is a little further out, then the cancer will not transfer in the electrical backup of the brain. Uh, if you need to do it in the shorter term, then there's cutting-edge FDA uh, research going on right now that depending on which of the 637 things we call cancer you have, we can try to get you into those FDA trials. And a billion dollars will certainly help with that. So again, it's one of those cases where we push back in the requirements going, do you want to solve it or do you just want to live? Right. So, and, and then sort of along those lines for that the one with picking the horses based on DNA, what was the initial problem? Just I want to win in horse races, or what, what was the initial problem? No, the problem was brought to us um, uh, in an interesting way, and the solution actually came out of banking and credit cards. So here's what happened. We had uh, wealthy individuals who owned a stud farm that train over 100 horses a year to be racehorses and enter in all different races. But out of those 100 plus, maybe only two would win. Now, when they win, they win, they become worth 20 to $40 million to breed, etc. But their view is, why are we training 98 losers? But they had seven years of vet veterinarian data on everything from lung capacity, heart capacity, adrenaline storage, etc., length of legs, weight of bones, and sequencing equine DNA. Now, in the credit card industry, people had come to us before on private label retail credit cards saying, Here's a thousand customers who have this FICO score and they all paid their bill. And here's a thousand customers that had the exact same FICO score and they all didn't pay their bill. Tell us what the difference is between them. You know, how do we know that these people are bad are, are a bad bet in terms of underwriting? And maybe we find out things like their bank accounts weren't open that long, or they were actually the trajectory of their FICO score was going down because they're in foreclosure in multiple houses. Or people who drive Priuses are 20% more reliable than people who drive Camaros. Or whatever it is that we figure out, dog owners move less often than cat owners. And um, that's called statistical regression. Look at all the parameters that you don't know if they matter or not and figure out what these people have in common. 
And we then applied that to the horses, saying, here's seven years of winners and seven years of losers. What do the winners have in common? And then what else can we measure about them? The size of their hoofs, the altitude they were born in, the weather conditions on the day. Does the weight of the jockey even matter, since at that level they basically just don't fall off the horse? Um, does the horse's eyesight matter? Is it, we found two ways of measuring a horse's IQ, because a smart horse is a good horse. Things like that. And then we found out what the things were that actually mattered in winners. So going forward, they didn't have to train 98 losers. Yeah. And we only had to be right once to make them another $40 million and pay for ourselves. <laughs> for sure. I mean, you guys must be using some form of like classification trees uh, for some of those problems, I would imagine. Um, that, yeah, there's all kinds of algorithms that we use when we throw it into a, you know, a large database uh, to play with those stats. But can you see there a good example of how we took a horse problem and immediately turned it into a software problem? Yes, exactly. I mean, I'm trying to think of all the different, uh, you know, I think that, I don't know if you've spoken with Uber yet, but we have a, one of our developers works, works there and I'm just, I used to be an algorithmic trader, so I'm always just kind of thinking about optimization and algorithms. Uber pool to me is a super fascinating problem and I would imagine that that would be a good fit for a problem that you guys could work on because sometimes, you know, you get into one of these Uber pools and it takes you completely out of the way and... You know, every time I pretty much every time I take one, I'm always just thinking about ways that they could be tweaking the algorithm to improve the efficiency of it, like, you know, creating hubs and having people swap out of cars or various different tweaks to it. So I'm, I'm just wondering, I guess, if, if you guys have been in touch with Uber about working on that problem. It would actually be a modified optimization of the traveling salesman problem yeah, exactly. in AI. Yeah. But, but um the see we're more than just a tv show uh, <laughs> well that's one of the clay mathematics problems isn't it yeah yeah absolutely and so here, here's one of the interesting ironies we're in 20 countries we're hired all over the place and we work in every state and we're based in california and the least likely place to hire us is silicon valley and the reason is they think they're already the smartest guys in the room and the people who hire us are humble enough to say look i have this problem and i don't think that I, I, uh, I'm the best brain to solve it. I think it's better if I rent a brain to try and look at my problem in a new light. Silicon Valley and Uber and others are not good at that. Um, they think that they have the best brains to solve the problem. So unfortunately, they don't come to us. Neither does Google, neither does Facebook, uh, neither does Oracle anymore. Mm. Um, whereas someone with a meat factory in, in the middle of uh, Utah or somewhere else will just call us up and say, look, you're the computer guys. You come in here and look at my factory and tell me where you would optimize it. Or someone calls us and says, look, I own a bar and I'm about to open 17 other branches of it. How do I do that efficiently? Or I'm going to make six movies in a row. How do I optimize reusing wardrobe, makeup, cameras, and everything else for all the six movies? Or someone's opening a chain of um, blow bars, like hairdresser bars, and they want to know how can you negotiate all the leases and do the data analytics to find out which, which shopping malls have the, have the highest traffic of 20 to 40-year-old women with disposable income, but are furthest from all the other hairdresser and blow bars. And then help me set up everything down to my merchant accounts and my security cameras so that, uh, and my, my uh, liability insurance so that my blow bar is a safe operating business that's profitable quickly. And then manage my social media strategy for me so that uh, Instagram influencers bring other women into the blow bar. Those are the people that hire us. It's actually the non-technical people who throw their hands up and go, okay, you guys handle everything that involves math. And I'll just do hair. Yeah. Have hedge funds uh, reached out to you? Because, like I said, I you know, I used to I used to be a high frequency trader. So it was you know a team of all computer scientists and mathematicians, and we we were very proprietary about our stuff and would never have hired a, a third party. But I, I'm wondering if you know now. I think that the, the view on that is changing, and there are there are a little bit more thoughts around hiring consultants. So it seems like that would be a really good fit too. To so, you know, some quant trading team to reach out to you guys to solve or come up with uh, an improvement to an algorithm or some strategy to exploit the stock market? So, yes, you're right. It uh, would be a good fit. No, most of the hedge fund teams, again, and private equity groups believe they're the smartest guys in the room. So they, we don't, they don't even want to talk to us or hear us out. There's too much ego going on in general. Yeah. 
Um, however, the large financial companies, mutual fund companies, credit card companies, who know how much they lose per hour of opportunity cost if they have downtime, disaster recovery, fail audit, lose trading licenses, a fail, you know, SAS 70 type 2 or SOX 404 operational controls, if they get hacked, uh, if they want to plug into LiquidNet or HarborSite for um, dark pool matching, uh, if they want to hide their size and be able to trade without moving the market against themselves, if they want to work on not just um, the automated uh, algorithmic trading, but the aggressiveness level settings on it uh, to understand how aggressive it can be before it starts hurting itself yeah. and run Monte Carlo simulations on those. We've done all of that. Yeah. Un ironically, we've only, but we've only done that for the funds with trillions of dollars. The, one, the hedge funds that managing millions of dollars think they can do it all in their head. Yeah. I mean, when you, when someone engages with you, I'm guessing you guys sign an NDA and the rights are the, the rights of the software, the technology you build are owned by the people paying you. Is that right? Uh, kind of, meaning uh, it's not a traditional work for hire agreement. Uh, the way we work is that the IP belongs where it should. So if you come to us and you say, look, here's my algorithm I want to do for trading. I want you guys to build it and write it and test it. Then you invented it. So it's all yours, 100% yours. It is work for hire. If you come to us with a problem instead of the solution and say, look, I need a better way of doing this. Now we have to figure that out. And we're trying to invent a solution for you. Now, at that point, before we go inventing it, we have a discussion and say, OK, well, if we figure this out, do uh, for the price you're paying, do you want to pay more so you have exclusivity on it? Have we got an interest in it? I see. Do you do we, and often what we'll do is an agreement to say, we actually retain, you retain a perpetual license of the IP to use for the rest of your life with the company and if you sell the company, but we retain the IP as well for every other industry that you don't care about. Right. So if we come up with a cool optimization algorithm and you said, okay, fine, you can use it, but just not in trading, then we might use it for UPS or FedEx to sort out their packages or how they logistically deliver stuff on trucks. Yeah, or, um, or predicting like race, ra uh, horse races instead of predicting stuff in the stock market. Exactly. So we, we have built part of our value add is we have a dusty attic of 30 years of every cool widget and technology that I've ever discovered. And those are my, my tools or my Lego pieces I can bring to bear on any new problem. Mm -hmm. um, so when you wheel in your problem to my garage, I can say by using these three different things we did previously in totally unrelated industries, we could probably solve this problem quickly. Yeah, no, definitely. Before you gave us that really amazing story about the, the billionaire breakup, but, and that was the you know, most exciting, most interesting task. What's, what's been one of the most challenging requests you've ever gotten? For Actually, the, the most challenging one is always the same for us, which is marketing. Uh, both for ourselves, because we are a very different kind of company. You know, there's high-level consultancy companies out there that will write you a white paper on the problem. And there's low-level outsourcing companies that will uh, do exactly what you tell them if you knew what to tell them to do. But there's very few companies that will figure the problem out and roll up their sleeves and solve it. And one of the problems we have is both marketing ourselves, trying to figure that out, although having, having a TV show was a unique way of doing that. At least we, we became, branding-wise, a household name. But also for our customers, we have customers just come to us and says, I just want more customers. You know, in a world of, filled with ADHD and people tuning out after three seconds looking at a website or a video and 500 channels on TV with nothing on and print magazines that nobody's reading and, and so on, viral videos that we can't figure out why they went viral. It's the hardest problem in the world is trying to reach people uh, for ourselves and for our customers. Now, do we know all the different options and what the prices are and how to do you know, sales funnels and do multivariant testing and A-B testing and, and try it all out and prove what worked and what didn't. Yeah, we know all the tricks, but it's still really, really, really hard. Um, and that's the hardest problem because it's totally intangible and you're dealing with darn humans and darn humans keep changing all the time. And it's very hard to figure out what will catch their attention. I could have the cure to cancer and nobody cares. Mm -hmm. But if I have a kitten looking cute falling off a couch, 30 million people want to watch that. And that, that's hard for a logical guy to process. Yeah, definitely. And so what's then the most expensive task you've ever had to do? Um, 
unfortunately, we uh, don't, as a privately held company, we don't declare our, our numbers or revenue, but I can, uh, I can certainly say that it's on the military side and, um, you know, we've done billions in revenue and uh, it's in our, our nation's defense systems. Fair enough. I guess another question that I have for you is with quantum computing coming out in the near future, are you expecting that a lot of these 30 years of projects that maybe uh, are dusty in the attic or previous problems that maybe you had to quote something extremely high and people passed on on solving it will now um, you, you're going to circle back to some of these problems because now quantum computing is going to change your ability to, to solve problems much cheaper? Unfortunately, not really. The reason is most of the problems that people would come to us with bar government can be solved with parallelism, good coding, and the Amazon cloud. There's enough horsepower there to get anything done in under 100 days if you want to get it done. The biggest impact quantum computing, I think, will have on us is in cyber warfare because it will render all passwords useless if people can uh, use quantum to start brute forcing everything. Um, so I think building up artificially intelligent cyber warfare using things called normalizers to detect when non-normal behavior occurs and shut down or attack back those IP addresses uh, be the busyness factor for us and where new clients will come from and they're already worried about this. Um, there's very few things that come to us that are computationally so difficult that they can't be done in the cloud today. So you're not getting stuff like how many pairs of red Nike shoes were worn globally today, for instance? No, and even then, that's still not. That's a Mongo database running on an e-commerce server that runs a big query, if anyone had that data. Um, and the, the thing is, when you run into numbers that need supercomputers to figure it out, which would be like simulating explosions and uh, nuclear clouds and things like that, they're generally academic-based research, so they don't have the budgets to hire us or want to solve the problem anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's it's practical problems that people really need to solve, like how do, can you half my packaging costs or reduce my shipping or allow my warehouse to ship six trucks a day instead of eight trucks a day out. It doesn't require a supercomputer. It just requires clever code and a laptop. Right. So I guess also when you're saying that you do a lot of military stuff, would that include, and obviously you probably can't say, but uh, something along the lines of, you know, I, obviously it's extremely expensive to redesign like a stealth uh, a jet, for instance. Um, so I know that there's a lot of simulation involved before you start the building process. And there's a lot of math and simulations to, you know, kind of predict or, or have a very good idea if it, how aerodynamic it's going to be what the cost is going to be, how fast it would go. So are those the types of projects that military would come to you guys for? No. Um, and I'm sorry to keep saying no, but it's, it's, you're asking very good questions and it, it opens up hopefully interesting conversations. But uh, here's how that works. The, you know, the big three, Raytheon, Lockheed, and Northrop, have all that stuff on lockdown since before I was born. Nobody's going to come to me and, and risk a, a, me building the F-35 fighter jet um, having having not done it before and not own my own runways and warehouses in the middle of the desert, as much fun as that would be. However, when they build the jet and they forget that they need a logistical support system behind it for all the spare parts, the installation, the training, the VR simulations, the command and control system, the icons for tracking it on screen, and um, all of that, the whole supply chain to maintain it, the ability to promise calculations in that supply chain, then they come to me going, oops, we forgot this part, and can you please fix it by Tuesday? So those are the kind of specific problems we get. We don't build a jet, but we might end up delivering the spare tires. Gotcha. Those things go on for 40 years. Um, I can't talk much about the military stuff we do, except for what's already been leaked or in the press. So to give you a flavor, we do Agile, the command and control system for the U.S. Navy. Aegis, the $10 billion ballistic missile defense system. Um, Sengen, the war game planning system for Afghanistan, the uh, Cyber Vault, the NORAD Cyber Vault for, uh, for uh, you know, cyber warfare. And there's probably some other ones I've left out. But, uh, you know, big systems that are software based that people die if you get it wrong. And we try not to get it wrong. Yeah. 
No, I, I understand. Our head of research is a friend of mine from grad school, and um, he's been a friend of mine for over 10 years and still won't tell me what he used to work on at Northrop. So um, I have one more question for you. Do you always charge uh, your fee uh, based on a number predefined up front, or do you ever work on performance basis? So, yeah, just to talk about our business model briefly. First of all, I, I challenge everyone who's listening to this to not go away and go, well, that was entertaining, and then completely forget about it. This interview, if you listen to it correctly, could change your life, your destiny, your pocketbook, and your business. And if you think of think of it like an affordable Santa Claus, what are the things that keep you awake at night, or what are your top three wishes if a genie came out of a bottle right now? And go type those into Concierge Up so you can talk to us about how we might be able to solve them. I don't want you to think that if you don't have billions of dollars, you can't hire us or work with us. Those are exceptional cases. We, uh, our minimum working with a customer is 10 grand to put towards the problem. 10 grand separates the talkers from the doers and it allows us to put a team together to talk through what you're dealing with. Now, that 10 grand opens an account with us because you don't know what your problem costs and we don't know what your problem costs and we'd be fools to start doing fixed bid based on systems that have never been done before and neither side knows the requirements. So we put down 10 grand and then we start working with you at an average of 150 bucks an hour and you approve the hours. So you get 66 hours of geniuses for that and we start working with you on what do you, uh, what's your problem, what's your requirements, what's your goals. If at any time you can cancel and get your money back for any hours you haven't used, just like a deposit or retainer at a law firm. And if you still like us next week and the deposit's running out, then you either put more money in the pot or we stop working. But either way, there's no surprises and no bad debts and, and nothing accumulated. And we don't need to lock into something for six months in advance and hope we deliver the right thing. You literally hire us day to day or week to week if you still like us. So it's, 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 always the 150 an hour. Uh, do you have different levels of genius? I think you mentioned at the beginning that there's like some super genius. So are those at a different rate? Yeah, the 150 is an average. If you hire an entire team for six months and you average it all out, it usually comes out to about 150. What happens is we have some people who are double that. We have lawyers that are triple that. And uh, then we have researchers that are half that. And it really depends on um, what we're doing for you. But typically, if you have a whole project, you're going to have senior people at the beginning defining it, and then maybe junior people at the end testing it and deploying it. So um, that's kind of just a guideline. So could you build uh, an app could, for someone, like, and just give us one developer? Is that something that you got? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We would have one super nanny, again, because speaking directly to the developer doesn't end, up, doesn't end well. We'd have one super nanny who will guide you through and understand your goals and push back and give you ideas on the app. And then we would go ahead and either have the app developed to one of our, our developers, or if we found that, let's say you had an app development company that you found that was affordable or better, we would then manage them against the requirements that we developed, which you didn't have, to make sure that it's successful, rather than you just talked to them and hope that what you get out of them is what you asked for. So we often step in the middle and become kind of the project managers to make sure that you get what you, what you paid for even if it's from someone else. We have no problem working with alongside other people. The, um, and you'll see testimonials exactly for app development if you go on our website and look at the testimonial section. I think it's the second testimonial. Um, in terms of performance-based, rarely. We don't want to advertise that up front. Now, if we get to know someone and we've worked together for six months and we like each other and we're doing some project that looks like it has legs and it's going to take off, then yes, the company's privately held. Any decision I make can, can overrule uh, what we normally do. So we have taken bar bets in the future and said, okay, I will lower my hourly rates to you and bet my margin against sweat equity. But that's not something people should come to us out of the box with, with their new startup. I'm, but I want to be very clear. We work on funded problems, meaning you already have the money, it's liquid, and you can cut a check on Monday. Not funding problems where you're looking for the money. Great. Well, I mean, th this has been beyond fascinating. And the, the last question that we always like to ask in these interviews, and you can interpret this however you like, is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Well, the first one is, is a bit self-serving, but rent a brain. You know, um, you can't know your own limitations, focus on your core competency, and outsource everything else. 
And that way you'll achieve the greatest heights you can achieve as a human and, and let other people enable you to achieve that. Don't try and do everything yourself. It's just too slow and painful. Even, you know, if you, even if you're a smart person, there's no reason for you to learn how to do everything yourself. So that would be the first one. Second one, be careful who you listen to. If you make thir- more than 34 grand a year, you're in the top 1% globally. If you make more than 460 grand a year, you're in the top 1% in the U.S. Well, most of you who want to be entrepreneurial or run startups, make money, do philanthropy, etc., are going to need more than 460 grand. So that means, if you reverse it, that 99% of the people around you are giving you bad advice because they haven't gotten where you're trying to get to. So don't listen to the people who don't have a track record of success. Be careful who you listen to. Qualify and consider your your sources carefully. And um, if you assume 99% of the people around you are wrong, you'll be a lot more careful about getting bad advice. And the last one, then, I would say is the result of Darwin's research was not survival of the fittest. It was survival of the most adaptable. So looking around you at what's going on politically, economically, what's likely to happen with the next stock market crash, with 160,000 Uber drivers about to be out of work because of self-driving Ubers that are already out in Pittsburgh, the 1.6 million truck drivers are about to be out of business because trucks are just big Ubers and they'll be self-driving soon as well, that the blue-collar worker is now costs 33 grand a year, the robotic arm that can replace them costs 100 grand a year, but that robotic arm works three shifts of production. So those people will be unemployed. So looking into a future of maybe 34% unemployment where one in three people can't feed their kids, does your business stand up well in that future? And I'm not talking the next 50 years. I'm talking the next five. Five years ago, people didn't know what an Uber was. Yeah, I think that's pretty salient advice. So uh, we'll have links to everything in the show notes that we discussed, but where is the best place for people to find out more about you and what you offer? So scorpioncomputerservices.com. If you want to see the whole backstory, references, testimonials, et cetera, et cetera, there's 120 plus pages of credentials and press on there. Concierge which takes you kind of to the same place, but allows you to just submit your, your questions, uh, is what I'd ask people to go to because the best way to get to know us, as you guys have done well on this call, is just talk to us. Type in your three wishes, just one-liners. Take you five minutes and open up a conversation with us if you have over 10 grand to put towards those problems. And um, talk to us because maybe we've solved your problem 10 times already and uh, we have the checklist and you don't. So try us out. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Walter, so much for your time. Thank you, guys. Uh, Great conversation and great discussion. Want to create more positive leverage in your life? Visit www.getleverage.com to access additional interviews, our blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every week. 